On this Palm Sunday, we continue our series exploring uh, the parables, uh, what some scholars call the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching. We heard about Palm Sunday, but we're going to explore a parable today that is very important because it will reveal how we approach our lives and how we situate ourselves will also impact how we receive this good news found not only on Holy Week, but on Easter Sunday. And so we're going to turn to a parable that is going to disrupt us. It's going to comfort the afflicted parts of our lives, but it's also going to afflict the comfortable parts of our lives. Just as Jeannie said last week, if we hear this parable and think, that was so sweet, then we have not been listening. And I'm just going to say this parable for me this week has disrupted me in ways that I'm still working through. It has opened up some pathways and challenged some of my convictions that I didn't see coming. So I want to invite you to share with me in that journey. If you feel like these words are prickly, pay attention. Begin to ask yourself why. Because on the other side of that question resides good news. Listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. From the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells this story. For the kingdom of heaven, in Luke's Gospel, it was kingdom of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock in the morning, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and at about three o'clock, he did the same thing. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, well, then you, you also go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, hey, uh, call all the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received their usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled. Don't you wish we knew what words they used? (laughs) They grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this to the last, the same that I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious? Because I'm generous. 
So the last will be first, and the first shall be last. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Hover here. Hover in this sanctuary, O God, just as you hovered over the waters of creation. Reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words that they may make order out of the chaos that is our lives and our world. Breathe new life, O God, into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you. For you are our rock and you are our redeemer. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. In my family of origin, on Saturdays, we worked. Which is what, that was the opposite of what I thought we were supposed to do on Saturdays. As a kid, we worked on Saturdays. We did our chores We did our house projects. If there was something to be fixed, we did it ourselves. If there was a room to be painted, we painted it. If there was a deck to be built, we built it. If there was a patio to be installed, we did it. We worked. Even on Saturdays, work was a value of my family of origin. I mean, we came by it honestly. My Nana and Papa, my grandparents on my mom's side, They retired late in their 50s. They retired late in their 50s, only then to pick up six more jobs. My grandparents, my Nana and Papa, are in their late 80s. And it wasn't until several years ago they finally retired from their last job. For years, they drove for Enterprise Rental Car Company. They would wake up early in the morning And they would get in a van and they would drive off to some distant foreign land somewhere in the southeast like Greensboro, North Carolina, Mark. And they would get out of the van and they would get cars. And in the words of my Nana and Papa, we'd run the cars back home. They did this day after day, week after week, year after year. In my family, we valued work. I mean, the worst thing that you could be called, the dirtiest four-letter word that you could be called in my family of origin was lazy. To be called lazy went against everything that we understood about ourselves. Everything that our family knew that we were responsible for. Lazy. It's um, why... Even in my family of origin, when I was a kid and during the fall, when we had teacher in-service days, I thought we would just sit around and watch TV all day. Nope, I went with my papa and we picked pecans, pecans, whatever. (laughs) And we would work all day picking pecans just so that during the fall we would have some work to do watching college football. 
because those pecans would get cracked and then we would take our crab pickers. If you don't know what a crab picker is, Google it. And we would pick out the remaining shells from the pecans. We couldn't just sit and watch football. We were working to this day. If you went to my Nana's house, she has an outside freezer. And that freezer, I guarantee you, is stacked with frozen pecans. Sharpie written on the front of them. What year they were harvested, cracked, and picked. Thank God for those pecans. But friends, sometimes our values can also come to define us. I mean, y'all know this. You know this to be true. It's why when you're uh, at a dinner party or a cocktail hour and you get there early and you're either there alone and you're trying to figure out what group you're going to break into or you're there with your spouse and you think, hey, Elliot, that way, buddy. (laughs) When you're there with your spouse, you think, are we going to go talk to those people? And you join the conversation and you say, hey, my name is this. And the person says, well, how long have you been in Dallas? And you say, I've been here seven years. And then the person says, well, what brought you here? You reply, work. You do. And then someone says, what do you do for work? And you reply, I'm a partner. And they say, at what? And you say, law or accounting, or consulting, or you say, I'm in the real estate business, or I'm in education, or I'm in medicine, or I say, I'm a Presbyterian minister, and I hold my breath. (laughs) Because Reagan, sometimes, before I can inhale, they go, great, it's good to meet you, and they walk (laughs) this way. Other times, they will respond in this way. Well, is that a full-time job? (laughs) Now, friends, I've just told you about my family of origin. What I'm about to share with you is deeply embarrassing. When people reply that way, my ego gets going. Because it goes against everything that I've been hardwired to do. Is that a part-time job? My ego kicks right in, and I reply sometimes in this way, and I'm not proud of it. I'm not. I will say, no, it's not part-time. It's actually not full-time. It's all the time. (laughs) Wait for it. You know, trying to care for a congregation of 3,000 people is an all-the-time job. No, you shouldn't laugh. That's gross. Oh, that's my ego responding. That's me going, no, no, no. I work hard all the time. I'm bound in the position of what it means to achieve and to be at a place like Preston Hollow Church. It reveals that if we work hard enough, that we too can achieve and our value is bound in what we have made. It's a moment when my ego reveals 
what I think we all know. We all know that we probably hold on to our titles and the things that we make and the hours that we work and the salaries that we receive. We all know that we probably hold on to that too much. We value it as something that defines us. If you don't think I'm right, um, let me know if after the service, if you would be okay for me to rewrite your job title and your job description. It matters to us. It's why when we uh, get a story like this uh, that was told thousands of years ago, it wasn't told in English. It wasn't told to Americans. It wasn't even told to an economic system that we know as capitalism. It wasn't even told to a cultural society like we know in Dallas. It's why when a story like this is told, it um, bothers us. It bothers us. When we hear of a landowner uh, who's a vineyard owner, and he goes out early in the morning, and he picks up some uh, workers, and he invites them to work uh, all day in his vineyard, and then at 9 o'clock he goes, and he finds more uh, workers, and he invites them to work in the vineyard, and then he goes back at noon, and he finds more workers and invites them to work in the vineyard, and then he goes at 3 o'clock, and uh, he invites more workers to work in the vineyard, and then he goes at 5 o'clock, and he invites uh, more workers to work in the vineyard, and then at the end of the day, he pays all of them equally. It's why that bothers us. Is this person who is a CEO, do they not know how many workers they need? Why do they have to keep going back? And why? Why? We're incredulous. Why does he pay them the same? It offends us. It offends us. Should. It offends us because some of us, we got here early. <laughs> I mean, we did that old-fashioned thing where we laid out our clothes the night before, Pat. We ironed them with starch. And we put them on the bed and we woke up early. And we fed not only ourselves, but we fed our kids. And we got everyone up and going. And when we got there, we put on those freshly ironed clothes, and we were at work when we were supposed to be dressed for success so that when the boss showed up, they knew they could have confidence in us to do the job. We have been busting it, and you're not honoring us for playing by the rules. Others of us are offended. We're offended because, yeah, we too got up early, and our clothes were set out, and yeah, we had to uh, feed all of our kids, but we can't help that our mother-in-law lives with us, and she needed some help. And so I helped her, and it delayed me getting out of the door by 15 minutes. And so yeah, I got to work 15 minutes late, but I'm trying to love for my mother-in-law. Should I be penalized for that? I mean, I worked hard as soon as I got here. We're offended. Then, those of us who came late in the day, we are offended that you're offended. We didn't ask to work. We didn't say to the landowner, pick me. We went because we needed some work. We're offended that you're so offended. Because uh, as soon as we got here, all we've noticed is uh, the three breaks you've taken. And if you add up all that time of all those breaks that you uh, have taken, we've actually worked the same amount. 
Yeah, we've been here less time, but we've worked just as hard. Some would say we've worked harder because we haven't taken a break and we had more energy to give than you did late in the day. We're offended that you're offended at us. We didn't ask for this. And then we're all offended at this uh, landowner. We're offended that he would run a business this way? What are the economics of that? I mean, how's that going to increase margins? I mean, news of this gets out in the market and the stock's going to go down and people, investors, aren't going to have confidence. I mean, do you know his mom and dad? You know how much they invested into that business? You know how much blood, sweat, and tears they put in just so that he could have that spot? What do you think his mom would say if she knew him running the business this way? She'd roll over in her grave. Is he even fit to be CEO? He doesn't even know how many workers he needs. Paying them all equally. The more you sit with that text, the more offensive it is. What are we offended by? Why is it when the landowner pays them all equally, we have all just sort of said, yeah, that's offensive. It's because sometimes our values and the work that we put in sometimes define us. Values are not necessarily definitions. Values are not definitions. It's really interesting when you go back and read that text. uh, The brilliance of this story is that Jesus, when he tells it, tells the landowner, hey, uh, tell the um, people who got here last, pay them first. What would have happened if the story would have said, you know what, tell all those people who got here first thing in the morning, pay them first. And by the time they get all the time they get out of here, none of the rest will know that I paid them the same. It's almost like Jesus wants us to have to respond with going, wait a second. I've worked too hard for this. Wait a second. This isn't what we all agreed on. Which is actually... If we're really honest about it, our response when we receive overwhelmingly good news, it just can't be true. It's not fair. I didn't get what other people got. It's why uh, Amy Jill Levine, who's been one of our uh, teachers, she's been accompanying us on this journey through this series. Uh, She is of the Jewish tradition, but she's a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt Divinity School. She says first century Jewish audience would have heard in this text uh, the echoes of Isaiah and Jeremiah. That the landowner is God and the vineyard is the people of Israel. First century Jewish audience would have heard that this wasn't just about an identity, but it was about ordering a culture and a society that was rooted in the generosity of God, not in the identity of what we produce and what we control and what we earn. 
If we go back and read this text through the lens of the landowner being God, we learn a lot. What does the landowner do? He only adds more all the time. He goes early in the morning and he gets some laborers in the vineyard and they go and work. And then he goes back and he gets some more. And then he goes back and he gets some more. And he goes back and he gets some more. And he goes back and he gets some more. And he goes back and he gets some more. As if they're not enough. He continues to expand the circle. And then the thing that is so offensive is when the landowner pays everyone the same, which is more than what those people who have been working all day thought they were worth. It's a story that points us to the generosity of God that should shake us awake. That we don't live in the midst of scarcity. That God's grace is not something that is fixed and that will ever run out. It's not that we will ever be outside from the presence of God. It's a story that should awaken us to say, when you receive grace, it only requires one thing. That you extend grace. How different would this story have been? If we would have started, and I wouldn't have set you up on my family of origin and how much we value work. But what if I told you we were a family that also valued grace? It would have been a different sermon. We would have seen the text differently. It's the invitation of the living Christ who invites us to extend grace to every person and every place that we go. Father Boyle says it this way, friends, um, perhaps, and I love how much room that word gives us, perhaps, it's useless to see Jesus and to know Jesus if we're not going to see the world as Jesus does. Perhaps it's useless to know Christ if we're going to move through the world and only see scarcity, to only see people who are not worth our time. Perhaps it's not enough to know Christ if we're going to view our own selves and our own faith as something we have to achieve. When I was in seminary, I took every class that Dr. David Bartlett taught. Dr. Bartlett died several years ago, and I wish he were here because um, the first thing that you would notice about him was he looked sort of like Yoda, and so we called him Yoda. <laughs> and he knew it, and he loved us anyway. The other thing he would say is, no one ever should call me Dr. Bartlett. You call me David. Dr. Bartlett is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He went to Yale the whole way through. PhD. He was on the faculty of University of Chicago. Called back to Yale. He was on the faculty of Yale Divinity School. In fact, he ascended to be dean of the faculty at Yale. Bartlett, uh, if he were preaching here this morning, he would have come over here and he would have read our gospel lesson uh, from the lectern. And uh, you all wouldn't have been able to see it, but he, it would have been a little leather book. And you all would have heard the gospel lesson. But the thing that you couldn't have seen was Dr. Bartlett, every time he read the gospel lesson, actually opened up his Greek New Testament. 
And he read from the Greek New Testament and interpreted it in real time. And you thought he was reading from the English. Dr. Bartlett, David, was one of our smartest guys I ever knew. I took every class uh, that he took at Columbia Seminary, and he started every class this way. Every first class of the semester, we would walk in, he had rearranged all of the tables, put them in a circle, put chairs outside of that circle, and he would say, friends, please be seated, welcome to the Gospel of John or to Mark exegesis. Before, we, uh, before I hand out the syllabi, I want everyone to go around the room, introduce yourself, Tell us what year you are in your studies, and please share with the class one thing that you are hoping to learn from your studies this semester. So by the time we did all of that, then he would hand out the syllabi, and then he would highlight the dates that we um, were supposed to turn in papers and what our assignments were. And just before we were ready to go, he would go, Beloved, one more thing. Before you leave, I just want to let you know what your grade is in this class every time he said I just want you to know that everyone in this class is going to get an A so I hope that you have time to put into the readings and I hope that you turn in your papers when the syllabus says so for you're all beloved and what a gift it is to be on this journey with you. And then he would pray. And almost every time it would sound like this. Gracious God, what a gift it is to come to see the world as you do. May our studies not only shape our minds, but transform how we see the world. Amen. And as soon as he said amen, David would get up, walk out the door, walk upstairs to his office. We never deserve grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it or achieve it. In fact, it's not a fixed commodity. It'll never run out. The invitation, my dear friends, in the words of David, beloved, may this good news transform the way you see the world so that we might all extend this grace. For that is the life of faith. Will you pray with me? God, your love never fails never gives out. It'll never stop. For your love is the animating force behind all creation. So awaken us, O God, that we might see by the power of your grace, as you do, that we too might be rooted in that identity. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.